title will be Understanding Self-Righteousness in Ourselves. Now, we think we can see self-righteousness pretty well in other people. We think we're pretty good at spotting it. But really, what is it? And can it be defined and quantified? I have sometimes made the comment that self-righteousness is the biggest sin in today's church. Uh, Self-righteousness being connected very closely with idolatry and worship of the self. So idolatry really is the biggest sin, but one of idolatry's biggest manifestations is self-righteousness or self-worship in one form or another. Now, it isn't fair to say the church is self-righteous unless you then go on to explain what that is, how it happens, how it affects us, what it does to us, and then, very importantly, once spotted, how do we get rid of it? So, I don't want to accuse us of something unless I can show that it is indeed correct, and then it is only fair to show us what to do about it. Be turning to Revelation 3, if you would. (coughs) Here is a section in chapter 1 through 3 where Christ is showing how he is the head of the church in chapter 1, and how glorious he is. And then he begins to talk about different attitudes within the church, attitudes which occurred in the early New Testament church uh, through the ages and which are rampant and rife in today's church. Today I wish to go to chapter 3 and give us a, a quick thumbnail sketch of the current situation, because we got to understand how self-righteousness works in the church and get an idea of what God says here so that we understand the importance and that it truly exists. Now, to Sardis, he writes that it had a name that it was dead, and I think we pretty well established in a sermon or two the worldwide church of God was Sardis, Uh, It is essentially dead at this point. A few names may be alive there and not be dead. But whatever is left, he says in verse 2, needs to be strengthened uh, because it's dying, almost dead, ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect, upright, mature before God. So he says, hold fast and repent. Uh, or I'll come on you as a thief in the night, and you won't have an idea what has come on you. Now, that's a scary pronouncement to make. Now, you and I were members of the Worldwide Church of God, were we not? So this was written to us, since we were there. Now we are not there. There are some who remain there, not very many. But it is dying spiritually, or almost dead spiritually, and only a few are keeping a certain amount of life remaining there. So, spiritually dead is the condition of the church that we were a part of, 
and it is continuing to die. So we don't want to be there, do we? We don't want to be somewhere where spiritual death is occurring. So we ran for it, didn't we? A lot of people realize that uh, what was true there was being taken away and could not be followed. Basically, just a quick run back into Protestantism is what occurred. And some swallowed that and went back into Protestantism, which they'd come out of, which is tantamount to a dog returning it to its vomit or a sow to her wallow. So that wasn't the right answer, obviously. But there are a few names in Sardis that uh, have not been defiled and will walk with him in white. So it's a matter of conduct here. Uh, it's a matter of a few who may have remained who were uh, true to the truth and didn't go away from it. Not very many. Now we have to understand then that if this be Sardis, the worldwide church of God was, and still is for that matter, almost dead, then those who came out of it are still alive and are still to be dealt with in one form or another. And I think we can see here very quickly by a couple of things that are, in the, are said about Philadelphia and Laodicea that both come out of Sardis. Let's examine that a little bit and understand, because if we don't understand truly who we are and what God thinks of us, then it's going to be hard for us to get in line in our thinking with what he thinks and then take the necessary steps to resolve the problem. Okay? You've got to know. You've got to define. You've got to understand. If you don't understand something, you're probably not ever going to fix it. So he says in verse 7, To Philadelphia write, uh, and it's he who is true, who holds the key of David, and that is Christ. It's not speaking of a man here. Some think they have the key of David. No, the key of David is something Christ has. He's the one that opens and no man shuts. No man can do that. So he is the one who can open the door to understanding, open the door to blessing, uh, rain, anything. So these are the words of Christ. He says, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door, and no man can shut it. Now that tells you right there that uh, Worldwide Church of God could not have been Philadelphia because the door has been shut. <laughs> uh, they were preaching to the world, and they are not now doing it. That door has been shut. <clears throat> now, when we read that and thought we were Philadelphia, the door was still open. The door to preach the gospel around the world, not as a witness in the end would come, but as a preparatory, as a... A calling gospel. And that's what actually happened in retrospect. But here is one that will be opened and cannot be shut. So that is something still in the future. For you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. 
And then it says he will make people come and worship before the feet of those who are true Philadelphians. Uh, Sardis has departed, has gone back into Protestantism, and unless they repent deeply, they will not be in the kingdom of God, and no one will come and write and uh, worship them, for they are spiritually dead. We were spiritually dead toward the end of that, or dying. So, verse 10 is critical to understand. Because you've kept the word of my patience, been patient, waiting, not giving up, enduring, I also will keep you from the hour of tribulation or temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. So these are people who will be alive and be in the church at the time of the great tribulation. They're still around. They will be saved out of it. Now, we thought when we were worldwide, we would be saved out of it and go to a place of safety, and it never happened, and since then, worldwide has died. So this has to be talking about somebody else, because the tribulation is not even here yet. And he's got to hold some out of it. So he makes that statement. So this, this gives us the timing. Sardis had an open door that got shut, so that's an end-time work. Has to be. Here is one who, that will come out of that and be kept out of the tribulation. Now, there is also another one that will go into the tribulation. We'll see that in a moment. It says, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which you have, that no man take your crown. So this is going to be, this is speaking to a people who will be yet alive, uh, to whom he will come quickly, and we are to hold fast, lest we lose what we have, if we're in this group. I don't mean this group, this church, I mean in the group of Philadelphians. I don't think that it is... Uh, truly extant yet. I think it comes out of. Him that overcomes will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. So, we used to say, well, God doesn't say anything bad about Philadelphia. Well, he says they've got to overcome, so there must be something. <laughs> There's got to be some problems to some degree or another, or they wouldn't have to overcome. But there'll be pillars in the temple of God in the name of God and the city and the new Jerusalem which comes down. So they will be in the first resurrection. They'll be part of the bride of Christ. The new Jerusalem, 144,000. Now, let's go to 14. To the Laodiceans, and the word means judgment of God, these things says Christ, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginner of the creation of God. Now, here is people who have come out of Worldwide Church of God. That's all God is dealing with, basically. Maybe a few individuals might be called apart from that, but that was the calling of God. And no man can be called except the Spirit of the Father draw him, and he called through a man and an organization, primarily the man. So... If these people were called, and there's no calling going on now to speak of whatsoever, 
than they had to have been called during the time of Herbert Armstrong. That's when the calling occurred. Then it basically stopped. Look at all the groups today that came out of Worldwide who still claim to be following Worldwide Church of God doctrine and testimony, and there's no calling going on. I mean, they send out magazines and make TV and radio programs and all kinds of evangelical efforts, but nothing happens. And if a few do come up to some of their evangelical meetings or whatever they're trying to do, uh, they come in the door and they walk back out the door. Uh, that's what's going on. That's what's happening. And all are slowly getting smaller that I know of, including this one. Now, let's see what he says about this category. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot, one or the other. It'd be easy to make a decision. But since you're kind of lukewarm in the middle, it makes it hard to make a judgment. That's what God's saying. I wish you were one way or the other. <clears throat> that way I wouldn't have to fret myself over what to do with you. So then he says, all right, I know what to do. Because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. So you either have to be hot. There's three conditions here. Hot, warm, and cold. Two of those three get spewed. Because you say, now here he is beginning to deal with attitude, approach, self-analysis, self-definition, if you will. Because you say, here's what you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. So this will be a matter of self-analysis of a large group of people at the end time who think they have everything they need. Now, we could look at what is here today, uh, the three, four hundred, five hundred splinters, whatever it is off of Worldwide, and do a little bit of analysis, and almost invariably, they all think they're Philadelphians. That is their self-analysis, self-definition. We are Philadelphians, okay? How many people do you know or have met or how many organizations claim they are the Laodicean church? Does anyone here know of any that claim to be Laodicean? <laughs> I don't know of any. Well, I've said we are, but uh, I don't know of many. That's one. Reforming Laodiceans. Because that's what came out. And I'm going to show you that Philadelphia comes out of Laodicea. So everyone thinks that they are the one. They think they are the chosen uh, group that Christ is working with. And that they are Philadelphia, and some of them will even go so far as to say everybody else is Laodicean but us. So you can see right there that the thinking of most of the church is right where Christ says here it would be. 
You say you're okay. You say you're the ones. You're the chosen. You're the ones doing the work. Or whatever. And you really don't need anything. Whatever Herbert Armstrong gave us was plenty. We don't need to grow. We don't need to change. We don't need to overcome. We have sufficient. Let's just create, recreate what we had there. I've gone over this many times. And that's what they're trying to do, basically, is recreate worldwide, which God spewed out of His mouth. So if you're recreating worldwide, you're no better than what you were when you were there. Right? You're the same thing you were when you were there that got you spewed. And know not, no awareness, no understanding, that you are wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So the people who are spiritually wretched, spiritually miserable, poor, spiritually blind, and naked, unclothed, do not know it. They are utterly unaware that they are in that condition. They think they're okay. Now, wouldn't most of us like to think we're okay? Don't we work on our minds and our own attitudes a lot, trying to show in some way that we are okay? We want to be okay. We want to be okay in God's eyes, and we want to be okay in our own eyes. So, we spend our lives trying to be okay, trying to be adjudged righteous by ourselves and by others. So it is really easy to, follow, to fall into self-deception because if you want to be okay and you want to appear okay and act okay and appear to others as okay and even appear to God as okay, then you are going to try to fit yourself into that set of clothes. And you'll work at it, because it is a goal and a purpose you have. And even the world has lots of books that have come out, self-help books. I'm okay and you're okay, I think was one, or part of the title of one, and there are lots and lots and lots of those out there. And we have a whole society, and most of its psychiatry and most of its self-analysis is to make us feel good about ourselves, to esteem ourselves well, to have high self-esteem. Is that a proper goal, to have good self-esteem and high self-esteem? Not if I'm reading verse 17, right? High self-esteem means saying, I'm rich and I'm doing okay, and I don't really need anything because I'm self-contained and doing all right. I am okay. The world is trying to convince everybody that's what they are. And God says on a spiritual level, there are people who think that way, and just the opposite is true. Now, how can you be so self-deceived that what you think is correct is diametrically opposed to God's viewpoint. That's scary, if you stop to think about it a little bit. My opinion of myself is exactly the opposite of God's opinion of me. That's, that can't be reckoned as a good thing. <laughs> I, I can't, that's not good. So, if he's talking about a large 
percentage of the church here, a vast majority of the church. It means that our self-analysis is completely upside down. Now, it's not fair again to say that unless I can give you a quantification, how to understand that, and then what to do about it. Because if that's where we are, somehow the blinders have to come off. Somehow we have to see. And he goes on down and says that. I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire that you may be rich. Truly rich, not just considering yourself that way. And white raiment, righteousness, not spotted, not speckled with the world, with Satan, with self, but clean raiment. That you may be clothed, not naked, that the shame of your nakedness do not appear, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. So he's talking here about a category of people who are self-blinded, self-deceived, and cannot see their own problems. Now, it does not say they cannot see other people's problems, does it? It says they can't see their own. And that's the problem with self-righteousness. We think we have it nailed when we look at someone and say, Oh, that person is so self-righteous. Have those words ever come out of your mouth? That person sure looks self-righteous to me. They sure think a lot of themselves. That's an easy thing for us to conclude. But it is almost impossible without better understanding to see self-righteousness in one's own self. How can it be so easy to see it elsewhere and so hard to be fine in yourself? But God says that's the way it is. He says this is the condition you're in and this is the condition you think you're in and you're blind as a bat. <laughs> you don't have a clue. Well, I want a clue. I want a clue about me and I want you to have a clue about you so that we can overcome and grow and have garments of righteousness. Now here, he's talking about this category of people who are in this condition and he says you're going to be tried in the fire and that you are to find gold in the fire. Well, what is coming? The fire of the great tribulation is what is coming. This is the end time. So he has one category that he says will be protected from it. Philadelphia up there. We read that. I'll keep you out of this hour of temptation. Then he shows here that many should go into it and find gold there. Now we know from many scriptures that we have studied in the prophecies that 90% of the church is going into tribulation, and a 10% remnant will be saved out to do the final work of God. So I think we can boil this down to say that all of us have been self-deceived to one degree or another and were either dead or dying in the worldwide church of God. Now, he has blown us apart and put us into a spiritual tribulation, which has not just lasted three and a half years. 
lasted a lot longer than that. Now, some may take advantage of this period of time and be finding gold in this time frame of spiritual tribulation that we have been going through since the 80s and 90s until today, still are. Now, if they find gold in this spiritual tribulation we're going through, they won't go into the physical tribulation. But if they don't find it here and now and repent, they will go into the physical tribulation and die there. 30% perhaps, as Zechariah 11 or 12 says, will repent during that time. So they will find gold tried in that physical fire. So Philadelphia and Laodicea are here today. Sardis is pretty much dead and gone. So what remains is these two. 90% of them will go into the tribulation. 10% will wake up now and be gathered of God, stirred of God, as Haggai says, to come build the final temple. So, 90%. Do you feel safe with just going by the averages? 90% are going here, 10% are going there. I must be in the majority. I'll, you know, no? Yeah, you probably are in the majority. If only 10% are going to be saved out of it, that means those 10% need to wake up now. This is their chance. This is their opportunity to come from nearly dead or dead to alive and righteous. So, what I'm establishing here is that we are self-righteous. We do not understand ourselves. We are self-deceived. And we have to wake up and understand. So what I want to do, or intend to do, is help us understand what creates this condition and learn to recognize it so that we can get rid of it. That's where the positive side of this will be. So I'm not here to condemn us. I am here to explain to us what we are and why and what we need to do about it. I think it is fairly clear that since we got spewed, we were Laodicean, or are. Because he says those are the ones he would spewed. Well... I think all the splinter groups, all the individuals, all of us have been spewed, right? <laughs> We're all just little pieces out here, here and there. So if you can say you weren't spewed out, then maybe you're a true Philadelphian, weren't self-righteous, weren't idolatrous, and were good to begin with. And I think there would be a real high level of self-deception and self-righteousness. So we need to comprehend that since we were spewed out, and that spewing to some degree is still going on as we all get smaller and smaller and more give up and don't endure to the end and so on, that this is a very, very serious situation we find ourselves in. So that 90% of us are going into tribulation. 
and only 10% will be held out. God says he will reserve 10% for himself, a remnant in Haggai, 10% in Isaiah 6. Uh, quite a few scriptures indicate a tithe that he will save out for himself. So only 10% will remain that have learned to analyze themselves correctly and figure it out and fix it. Only 10%. This is scary. And I don't think we have got it figured out yet. So that's why I'm studying some scriptures and trying to help us understand and define so that we can do something about it. Now let's understand a little more where we are, not from right here, which defines it pretty clearly. But go back to Deuteronomy 12 and verse 8. Deuteronomy 12. Now here Moses is addressing Israel, and he's talking about when they're going to go into the promised land, the place that God will choose in verse 5. And uh, reading on down in verse 9, he says, You're not yet come into your inheritance and the rest which your God gives you. Now, this was, physically speaking, of a physical rest in the promised land, and they hadn't gone there yet. Now, we seek a greater promised land, uh, that of eternal life in the kingdom of God. And we have not yet entered into it, have we? Not by any means. So he goes on down to say that uh, you shall do everything I command you, and so on. And in verse 12, you shall rejoice before the eternal your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your men servants, your maidservants, and the Levite that is within your gates forever, for as much as he has no part nor inheritance with you. Um, Take heed to yourself uh, that you offer not your burnt offerings in every place that you see. You have to be sure you worship in the right place, the right time, and in the right way. But in the place which the eternal shall choose in one of your tribes, there shall you offer your burnt offerings, and you shall do all that I command you. Uh, I'm missing a verse here. Oh, here, verse 8 is, is what I, I, this is leading to. You shall not do after all the things that we do here this day. Now, what was that? Every man whatsoever is right in his own eyes. It is not a good condition when we find ourselves in a situation where everyone is deciding for himself what is right. That is not a good condition. Moses is saying that. Where do we find ourselves today in the church? Basically, in a situation where everyone is deciding for himself what is right for him, him to do in his own eyes. That's where we find ourselves. Now, that's not good. He says, don't be that way. All right, let's go to Judges... 17. Uh, let's look at verse 1 here. Now we're in essentially the same time frame, a little further on. 
from what Moses was saying there. They had come into the land. But here's a, a story in chapter 17 of a man, and it relates to today. There was a man of Mount Ephraim whose name was Micah. So he was an Ephraimite, apparently, as we are. And he said to his mother, The eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from you, about which you cursed, and spoke of also in mine ears. So somebody had stolen eleven hundred shekels of silver from this woman, and she cursed and screamed and yelled and was outraged that anyone would have done that, and he heard it. He said, Mom, I did it. <laughs> the silver's with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be you of the eternal, my son. Now, was she saying, You need to be blessed because you stole that money? No. She's saying, Blessed be of God that you admitted it <laughs> and that you are going to return it. Uh, you admitted your sin. Now, sometimes as parents, we were relieved when our kids would admit that they'd done something wrong, right? Frustrated over what they had done and happy when they admitted it and came clean. So that's what he did. So when he had restored the silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver to the eternal from my hand for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. She says, I was going to use that money to make you a god, and uh, I'll restore it to you. So he restored the money to his mother, and his mother took 200 shekels and gave them to a founder who made a graven image and a molten image, and they were in the house of Micah. So she made him a god, and it was in his house. The man Micah had a house of gods, a house of gods, and made an ephod and a teraphim, and consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. So he made him a priest of Baal, if you will, a priest of idols. Oh, he's not being blessed of God. Now, here is the condition. In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Same thing Moses had said was not a good thing. Now, here was a man, Micah, who had made lots of gods and had made his son a priest himself. And what was his biggest sin here? Self-righteousness or idolatry. He had made gods himself that he put above God. And in that sense, he was putting himself above God because he had gods that he considered higher than God. And when we put ourselves on a pedestal and our desires, our needs, our wants, which are contrary to God's way, then we are committing idolatry because we're putting our way of thinking and our wants above God's word on how we should react and live and think. So anytime you break God's law, you have committed idolatry. You break one, you break them all. So this man had literal idols. Ours is more in the mirror as opposed to being carved with hands. 
So it was not a good condition. Everybody was making his own God, deciding for himself what he would do. So here was the condition this fellow was in. Now in verse 7, there was a young man out of Bethlehem, Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he was traveling there. And the man departed out of the city from Bethlehem, Judah, to sojourn where he could find a place. So he was looking for a place to live. He came to Mount Ephraim in the house of Micah <coughs> as he journeyed. I don't know whether he had a bed and breakfast or what, but he wound up at that house. Micah said to him, where you come from? And he said, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem, Judah, and I go to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Huh, stay with me. Be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten shekels of silver a year and a suit of apparel and your food. So, so he was working for room and board plus ten shekels a year. Now, he, this guy had stolen 1,100 shekels from his mother. So, 1,100 times, divided by 10, that's 1,100, no, it's uh, 110 years worth of wages for this one guy. Plus his room and board. So, it wasn't really hurting Micah to give him 10, 10 shekels a year. So, the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man was unto, unto him as one of his sons. So, he fit right into the family here. And Micah consecrated the Levite. Now, he had consecrated his own son, so now he consecrates this Levite. Uh, and he became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Now, here's something revealing in verse 13. Then said Micah, Now know I that the Eternal will do me good, seeing I have a Levite for my own priest. Now, Micah must have understood to some degree or another that he was unrighteous. He'd stolen from his own mother an awful lot of money. And he had fessed up to it, but then when idols were made, he worshipped them and had them in his house and made a bunch of his own and even made a priest of his own son. Uh, he had no right from God to do that. Uh, how do you ordain your own son when you're not a priest yourself? But he did. So he was trying to receive blessing or good from God without doing good. He wanted to retain his idols. He wanted to retain his own self-definition of himself as righteous to consider him okay, himself okay and all right and good enough for God to bless. And he used this young man to exalt himself to that status by saying, since I have my own priest, I must be okay. So, to what lengths will we go to make ourselves look good in our own eyes and hope that we look good in the eyes of God? So, he was buried in idolatry and yet thinking he was okay. Does that sound at all like Revelation 3, where we make an idol of ourselves, thinking that we are righteous and wonderful and good and okay and all right and clothed in righteousness and not realizing how naked and blind we really are? That's the condition this man was in. 
And it was at a time when everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. In other words, there was no strong leadership. There was no good leadership. That's where they found themselves. It's repeated back last verse of the book of Judges as an emphasis on that period of time in Israel's life. It's a summary, if you will, of what happened after uh, Joshua died and so on. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So that is the judgment of that particular time of Israel's history. Not a good thing. Now let's go to Job 1, or no, Job 32, excuse me. Job 32. Verse 1. Now you remember the, the story of the three guys who came and tried to straighten Job out and, and uh, let him know what his problems were. So here's a summation of that. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Someone who considers himself righteous really isn't worth talking to. If they consider themselves righteous, it will do no good to cast your pearls before swine. Because anything that you say that is contrary to that, or that is negative about them, or that might be a sin, or might be a fault, they're not going to listen to you. So why bother? Why waste your breath? Now, if someone is truly humble, they are contrite, they don't have a high opinion of themselves, you might have a chance to... Use some logic, some reason, some wisdom, and they might be helped and respond to it. But when they're self-righteous or right in their own eyes, you can't say anything that will reach them. So why waste your breath? And that's what these fellows finally came to. Uh, We're wasting our time. Why even talk to this guy? He's not going to hear anything we say. He's already decided he's okay. (laughs) So, we might as well pack up and go home. Now, the truth is beginning to come out about Job here. Now, God had not found anything wrong in Job's conduct. Right? Job was keeping the laws of God. So, when the accuser came there in chapter 1, well, when God summoned the accuser, Uh, God said, verse 8, Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him in the earth, a mature and upright man, one that fears God and hates evil. Now when God said there, was it in Ezekiel, uh, that if these three men, Noah, Job, and Daniel appeared, they could save no one but themselves. I mean, you can't, fix anybody else. You can't save anybody else. You can only go to God and implore about yourself. So if you think you can save anybody else or straighten anybody else, you might as well forget it. It ain't going to happen. 
It is a personal matter. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, not anybody else's. But aren't we all ready to help somebody else with their problems? We're quick to point them out, quick to define them, quick to see them, quick to condemn them, and quick to criticize them, be negative and judge them, and gossip, aren't we? Now he said, this is a man that's walking uprightly. Satan answered, does Job fear you for nothing? What if I give him all kinds of trouble? Now see, God understood that Job had an attitude problem. People have said, well, there was nothing wrong with Job. Yes, there was. There's something wrong with everybody. Now, there wasn't anything wrong with his conduct, necessarily, because he was following God's laws, at least on a physical level. But he considered himself righteous, considered that he was above others. He had judged himself to be a very righteous man. And he could not see the comparison between himself and God. He looked around and compared himself to other people, and he felt that he was fine. Now, the end of this, when you get down to chapter 42, will show that he says, Oh, now I see. There is an enormous gulf between me and God. Now, he couldn't see that before. They went through all these chapters of arguing back and forth about who's righteous and who's not righteous and why they are and why they're not. And this was a battle royal to help Job see his self-righteousness. It was quite a task. And when it came to chapter 32, these guys just gave up. says, it doesn't do any good to talk to him. He can't understand. He can't see. God says in Revelation 3, anoint your eyes with eye salve so that you may see what your true condition is. Now, does it do any good for me to preach and say we're all Laodiceans and most of the church would deny that and say, oh, he's stupid, he's wrong. We're, all, we're Philadelphians. Now, everybody else is a Laodicean. But we are the Philadelphians. Is that the same trap Job was in? He could see everybody's problems but his own. Couldn't see his self-righteous attitude. And by the time this book ended, God had put him, via Satan, through so much that he finally saw that compared to God, he was not righteous at all. I think he had some spiritual understanding there that even though he may not have had physical idols like Micah did in, Jeb, in, Judge, in uh, Judges there, he was his own idol. He had put himself in his vision and uh, analysis of himself above even God. And God showed him very clearly, Hey Job, you've got a long way to go before you're like me. But wasn't that a hard lesson for Job to see? Look at all he had to go through before he began to see it. None of us are as righteous as Job. Why can't we see it? Now, we can see some of our sins, can't we? 
If we're doing this or doing that or doing something else, we can see that sin, can't we? I know I'm stealing. I know I'm committing adultery. I know I'm lying. You're aware of that. But are you aware of your self-righteousness? That's a totally different subject. Totally different subject to recognize that. I'm not going there yet to get down to defining and helping us with that. We've got to have a little more background first. Psalm 36. We've got to understand our condition before we can fix it. And we are in the same situation now where every man does what is right in his own eyes, and I'll show you that very clearly, not just from Revelation 3, but from another place here in a little bit. Psalm 36, verse 2. Uh, well, let's go with verse 1. The transgression of the wicked says within my heart, there is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes until his iniquity be found to be hateful. He doesn't grasp what he is until finally he begins to recognize the self-deceit and the self-righteousness that is there. We like to flatter ourselves in our own eyes, don't we? We like to try to find a way to think of ourselves as being okay, even as Micah did there in Judges 17. And it's hard to see. We can see some of our unrighteousness, but we can't see our self-righteousness very well. Isaiah 5, verse 21. Woe to them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Now, woe is a very strong word. Go read the, the three woes of the book of Revelation. Woe is a life-threatening. So when it says woe, he's saying that those who think they are wise, that think they're good in their own eyes, I'm a Philadelphian, or whatever, and prudent in their own sight, woe to them. You are in danger of eternal death. Because spiritual death is what you and I are facing and fear the most. Eternal death. So if your self-analysis turns out that you're okay, you're pretty good, you're fairly wise, you, you can have a pretty good opinion of yourself, God pronounces woe on you. You're self-deceived. You don't understand yourself. You don't know yourself. Let's go over the book of Proverbs for a few minutes here. There's lots of these. I'll just touch on a few of them. Chapter 30. And uh, here, verse 12. There is a generation. That would be ours. This church generation. Revelation 3. Uh, that are pure in their own eyes, and yet is not washed from their filthiness. Isn't that basically what he's saying there in Revelation 3? You have a pretty good opinion of yourself. You're pure in your own eyes. You're a Philadelphian, but you're not washed from your nakedness and blindness and filth. There is a generation, how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up. 
A generation whose teeth are as swords and their jaw teeth as knives to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among men. If that is not three verses that define the church of God in the end time, I'll eat my hat. Each group thinks they're okay. They're the Philadelphians. They're full of pride and vanity. And everyone else, they destroy with their teeth and their jaws and their tongues. Gossip, backbiting, negativity. Those three verses are us. How do you deny it? Chapter 21, verse 2. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. We are prone to think of ourselves as okay. We are quick to condemn and judge others and point out their faults, to not, not usually to them, but usually to someone else about them. But we're pretty good at recognizing other people's problems, aren't we? Just not our own. In our own mind, we're right. We're okay. We like to brag about our prayer or our Bible study or our spiritual condition, which is Philadelphian in our own eyes. But God says 90% who consider themselves Philadelphians are going to turn out late to sin and go into the tribulation. So nine-tenths are absolutely wrong in their self-analysis, and I would say that's really 100% and 10% repent of it. So I'm going to try to give us some clues here as how to repent of it and how to see it and how to overcome it, because that's all that matters. If you remain in this condition, uh, you're in trouble. Uh, how about 16, verse 2? All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes, but the eternal ways the spirits. Now, you can self-adjudge yourself okay or better than others, but God weighs your heart, your mind, your attitude. And that's what he did with Job. God said, okay, he's basically obeying. He could conclude he's righteous, but he's a long way from being on my level. And he has to see that. It's easy to make comparisons among ourselves and feel all right by comparison. And it's not wise. There's a scripture about that too. Chapter 12, verse 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. So anyone who considers himself good, right, upright, righteous, better than you, is a fool. He that hearkens to counsel is wise. Remember what I said? If someone is self-righteous, there's no, you're just wasting your breath trying to explain to them what their problem is. Those three got frustrated with Job. I give up. He can't see it. Of course, they were self-righteous themselves. But God used Satan and them to help him ultimately see his own lacks. So, it's foolish to think of yourself as okay. Compare yourself to God if you think you're okay. It's comparing yourselves to men that leads you to think you're okay. 
you may not be like God, but at least you're better than them. And that is a self-righteousness. Chapter 3, verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the eternal and depart from evil. So all these scriptures really are telling us is that we had be, better be very, very careful of how we look at ourselves and how we adjudge our spiritual condition because we're liable to get it wrong. And if you have a good opinion of yourself spiritually, you are wrong. You are. So anyone who is in the middle of the spittle and the spewing and considers himself a Philadelphian is in great jeopardy based on these scriptures and does not have a clue what they really are. That's the whole church. It's the whole church. We'd better get a clue. Let's go to uh, Isaiah 51. I'm going to wrap this up here in a little bit. I want to consider just a little bit more. Isaiah 51. Remember, we read those scriptures in Deuteronomy and Judges about every man doing that which is right in his own eyes. And I said, that's us. Well, let's show that. Because here in Isaiah 51, we have a book of prophecy. It's about the end time. Not about any other time. It's about the end time. May have had some past fulfillments in part, but the main overall final fulfillment is in this age and to this church, to you and to me. Let's get personal about this. Isaiah's writing to you and me and the end time church here. Isaiah 51, let's begin in verse 16. I have put my words in your mouth. Uh, someone that God is going to put words in, and he's speaking to Isaiah here. And I have covered you in the shadow of my hand, that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth, and say to Zion, you are my people. So he tells Isaiah, I put my words in there, I want you to tell them they're his people, but he's going to go on to show that there are some problems. Awake! Awake! Wake up! Anoint your eyes with eye salve, Psalm Revelation 3. Same, same thing. Stand up, Jerusalem, which have drunk at the hand of the Eternal the cup of His fury. Now, is the church drunk of the cup of God's fury? Read the book of Lamentations. We have been spewed and scattered and splintered until there's hardly anything left. And we have gone through spiritual famine and disease and pestilence, spiritual sword that has killed many, and the rest are in captivity to themselves and sin, and so on. So we have faced the fury of God on a spiritual level. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. Now, here is our condition, same as Moses' analysis of Israel in Deuteronomy 12. There is none to guide her among all the sons whom she has brought forth. Does that sound like there's no king in Israel and everyone did that which was right in his own eyes? Saying the same thing. Neither is there any that takes her by the hand of all the sons that she has brought up. The ministry doesn't have a clue. 
They're telling them they're Philadelphians. Well, not everybody is, but you are, if you're following me, because I certainly am. Isn't that what's being vomited out over the pulpits of the Church of God around the world? Yes, it is, exactly. These two things are come to you. Who shall be sorry for you? Desolation and destruction and famine and the sword. By whom shall I comfort you? Your sons have fainted, lie at the head of the streets, and so on. Therefore, hear now this, verse 21, you afflicted and drunk, but not with wine. We're spiritually drunk. Don't know what's going on. Drunks are not really aware of their surroundings. They think they're witty and smart, but they don't have a clue what's going on around them. And people can hiss and boo and make comments behind their back, and they're just doing fine. So we're spiritually drunk. I'm just doing fine. I'm a Philadelphian because I follow so-and-so. No. We're in the same spiritual condition Israel was back then. Go to Jeremiah 17. You probably know this one. You know I'm going to go to verse 9, don't you? Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things. There is nothing as deceitful as a human heart. Bar none. Nothing. And a little wicked, desperately wicked, who can know it? So there's three things being said here. The human heart is deceitful more than anything on earth. It is wicked to the point of desperation. That's pretty wicked. And then ask the question, who can know it? Can you know your own heart? Now you've got to recognize it's deceitful. You've got to recognize it's de- desperately wicked. That's your human heart. Yours, mine, everybody's. All of them. Every one of them. That is our condition as a human being. And it is almost impossible to grasp and understand that. God even ponders our heart because it is so wicked that we can't see through it. We can't plumb the depths of it. So he thinks about it and ponders it and watches it and tries to get a handle on whether it's worth having or not in his universe. Now, I didn't say there wasn't a way out, but I'm saying self-deception is predominant. It is there. Isaiah 64 Here I'll take verse 8. <clears throat> now, wait a minute. 64. I wrote that down wrong somehow here. Oh, well, let's go to 65. We're handy. Isaiah 65 and uh, verse 5. Would say, stand by yourself, come not near to me, for I am holier than you. These are a smoke in my nose, a fire that burns all the day. 
Now, you don't tell anybody, I'm holier than you are. How often do you say that? You come up to somebody and you tell them, you know, you're a wretch and I'm holier than you are. We don't put it in those words. We don't say it. But we imagine it. We think it. We do it. We are making comparisons in our minds constantly about others and what we think of them. And we won't go tell them how much more holy we are than them. But we will tell others how bad they are. And when you tell someone how bad somebody else is or point out their faults or their problems, you are in essence saying, they're worse than I am. They are like this. And I can find that, I can see that, I can judge that, and I can tell you on my word that that is true about that person. And we've all done it. And too often still do it. We may not say the words, but the attitude is there. And the things we say about people indicate that we believe their conduct is worse than ours is. That is self-righteousness. I'm holier than you in my own estimation. And I will tell people how unholy you are so that I might appear to be holier myself. God hates that. It is a smoke in his nose, a fire that burns all the day. It's constant. It's continual. You don't like smoke in your nose or your eyes, do you? Get around the campfire. I see people doing musical chairs around the campfire. Got to get away from that smoke. Don't want it blowing up my nose and making my eyes burn. When we judge ourselves in better condition than anyone else or someone else and repeat it either to them or to someone else about them, that is smoke in the eyes of God. It is utterly repulsive to Him. And in fact, he calls it an abomination in Proverbs 6 or 7 there. Evil imaginations about other people. Evil judgments are an abomination. That's, that's as bad as you can get. Abominable. Blasphemous. Synonyms. So self-righteousness is a very, very serious and a very, very common problem. All the day it burns, God says. All day long. Doesn't cease. Doesn't quit. Holier than thou, self-righteousness is something that is in the nose of God day and night. Just burns all the time. So this, I take it, is a truly serious problem. James 1.22. James 1.22. I hope we're thinking of this very seriously. Be you doers of the words, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Well, that was a good sermon. 
Those are God's words. You read God's words to me. Uh, Thank you for that wonderful sermon. And then we go out and forget it and pay no attention and don't follow through and do what was said. God speaks very, very low of that kind of conduct. Read the rest of it there and you'll see that. All right, then, let's go to Isaiah 54. There's a transition going to be made by some people. So we all find ourselves in a Laodicean condition, accusing everybody else of being Laodicean, but ourselves or our own group that we consider to be Philadelphian, which is poor self-analysis. And he says 10% will repent of that, 10% of those who were spewed are going to be regathered there in the book of Haggai and Isaiah 6 and a plethora of other scriptures. And when they are gathered together, he says here in Isaiah 54, go back there. I guess you turned if I said it and then I didn't get there. But he's speaking of the gathering here where the tent is enlarged and people come and he gathers them and how he will begin to bless them again. And he talks about how he's their husband in verse 5. So these are part of the bride of Christ he's talking about here. And he says he's going to protect them, verse 17. No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against you in judgment you shall condemn. So these are going to be a people who others look down upon and condemn But it's not going to work. You'll condemn them by the light that you use, that you are. This is the heritage of the servants of the Eternal. Their righteousness is of me, says the Eternal. They will have quit being self-righteous, and they will have become truly righteous. Now, the whole church today is self-righteous. (coughs) it is not truly righteous. It has all been spewed out. If you think yourself, if you think of yourself as righteous today, you are wrong. Your self-analysis, your definition of righteousness as pertaining to yourself is upside down and backward. You're self-deceived. There is none righteous, no, not one. Now, those are pretty serious allegations. None of us are righteous before God. If we think we are, we read a lot of Proverbs that say that that is an unwise and foolish attitude to have. Now, we are all these scriptures I've just read today. That's what we are, brethren. That's what I am. That's what you are. We are all these things... Now, how do we get from Revelation 3.16, being blind and naked, self-deceived, how do we get from there to their righteousnesses of me, says the Eternal? How do we go from where we are now to God saying this about us? 
That is the question. I hope I made you feel terrible. I hope next week I can begin to show you the way out of the woods.